give honor to our God who is worthy of all praise. And I do magnify Him, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one eternal God. I am grateful to Him for His goodness to us in these days past. Uh, since we were with you last month, uh, we have up in Boone at a widow's retreat up there with the uh, church from uh, Statesville as well as Bowie's Creek. They support the Bible camp up there. We had a very good time with the widows. Terry was able to come up for a little while and then we got home, had a quick turnaround and left for Dayton, Ohio. And the Lord gave us a very good meeting this past week up there. Uh, Union Baptist Church we were meeting with, but Covenant Baptist Church joined them in the meetings. They met Sunday morning at their facility and then came on over Sunday through Wednesday nights with us and we had a, a blessed meeting and we thank God for His mercy. Thank God for mercy not only in ministry but also in travel. I'm glad to know that over these days He's been with you as well, my brothers and sisters. I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John this morning. And uh, I'd like for us to think together about the subject, uh, praying in the name of the Lord Jesus. Praying in prayer in the name of Jesus. We uh, see it as our Lord speaks of it in that upper room discourse in John chapters 14 through 16, and I'd like for us just to spend a little time thinking about that together this morning, and uh, may, it be a, may it be a little bit of a challenge to our hearts to pray. I appreciated the uh, marquee today, pray for our country. We are in desperate times, I believe, and we need uh, more than ever, I believe, to lay hold on the living God. To go boldly to Him through the work of His Son. And that's the blessed privilege that is ours because of what Christ has done. To be able to go boldly to God's throne of grace. Because there's a high priest there who's at God's right hand who represents His people. And because of Him, because of His righteousness, His merit, His blood, we have access into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And we can go and we can find mercy, we can find grace, we can find strength, really we can find anything we stand in need of before our Father. and Our Savior, as He is aware of the fact that He is going to the cross, this is beeping a little, is that okay? Oh, it's okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. My hearing, Debbie, is such that I'm going to be thrown off. It reminds me to breathe. Okay. It'd be a good reminder for me, too. Especially when you're speaking. Morning, Brother Glenn. Uh, When you're speaking, you need to breathe, you know. So I will will take it as a prompt. I just want to make sure that I wasn't having a malfunction. Well, let's look at John chapter 14. And uh, as we... Read together from that portion. If I could direct your attention in John 14 to verses 12 through 14. And our Savior, of course, is speaking specifically to His disciples. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on Me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto My Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. And I want us just, as I said, to consider this a little bit from these words of John 14 through 16, thinking together about prayer in our Savior's name. May we just call on our Lord in prayer. Father, we bow before you in the worthy name of thy dear Son. We do so with thanksgiving for the privilege we have, Father, to draw near 
to gather together in the name that is above every name. Father, I ask You to honor Yourself, to honor Your Son in our midst as we look together at this blessed subject that our Savior specifically introduces here to His disciples. We ask, Father, that as we as we consider it, You would give us enlargement by Your Spirit. But, Father, also we pray that You would help us to pray in the Spirit. That Your Spirit, the Spirit of grace and supplications, would, would give us great incentive in praying. Father, we do lift up the needs of our land. Father, we are in desperate straits. We, we would ask You to favor us politically. But, Father, we look to You for more than political expedience. We need revival. And Father, we pray that You might graciously work and You might graciously do for us. Father, honor Thy name, honor Thy Son, we pray, in pouring out Thy Spirit in these days, reviving Thy churches, Lord, and being with those who, uh, who know You, that we might, Father, seek You more, and in laying hold of You, we might see You broaden the, the tents, and Lord, broaden the uh, stakes of our habitation, and enlarge Your churches, Father, by additions through conversion and through uh, Your regenerating power and saving grace. Father, we pray You'd magnify Yourself in that way. In the name of the Lord Jesus, Amen. And again, we want to think about the subject of prayer in the Lord Jesus' name. In doing so, it's something that our Savior introduces here in what is commonly called the Upper Room Discourse. In John's Gospel, the movement of John's Gospel has been defined by some in terms of, of, two, uh, of two main sections. Some call it the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. For John records seven signs from chapters 1 through 11 in which he shows the power of the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. Those signs begin with the turning of the water into wine in John chapter 2 and continue into chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus. And they're called signs by John, I believe. He uses the Greek word semeos because, semeon because there's a specific uh, focus that these signs have. They are not an end in themselves. If, if you are going to a certain town and you get to the border of the city and you read Welcome to Burlington, you don't stop there and say, oh, I've got here. The sign is indicative of something. And, and that was true of the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were signs that pointed to Him as God's genuine, authentic Messiah. The one that He had promised to His people in the Old Covenant Scriptures. In fact, there were certain signs, and if you remember in John 9, the, the uh, blind man catechizes the Pharisees, gets them upset. But, but uh, they are questioning the miracle that is taking place at the hands of Jesus when that man is told as Jesus takes spittle and then makes mud and places it on the man's eyes and then tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, he does so and comes back sighted. And as that man has received his sight, the Pharisees begin a theological debate about whether this man is of God or not. And yet this man, he says to them, and I think he does a good job of catechizing them by the way, he says, herein is a wonderful thing. A miracle that has not been done since the world began. A man has opened the eyes of the blind and you're wondering if he's of God or not. Now, one thing particularly that I believe that man realized and had some insight into that the, uh, 
The Pharisees didn't. Back in Isaiah chapter 35, God had spoken of some distinctive signs that would happen when He Himself came to save His people. He had sent prophets, but He had made it clear through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, even in Isaiah's words that the the shepherds of Israel had not done their job. And so He said, I Myself will come and I will seek My lost sheep. But in chapter 35 of Isaiah, when he talked about the desert blossoming like a rose, he spoke of, as, as he said, I will come to save you. Well, let's just look at it for a moment. It's a little bit aside, but maybe it'll be helpful. Isaiah chapter 35. Notice the words of the living God through His servant Isaiah as He looks ahead in anticipation of that day when He Himself would come to save His people. Let's just begin at verse 3 in the 35th chapter of Isaiah. We find there these words, Strengthen ye the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with the recompense. He will come and save you. Then then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb or mute sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Now notice what God is saying there in the words of verse 4. He's telling His people who are discouraged, His people who are who are in uh, straits in which they're feeling their own weakness and feebleness. He's saying the Lord, God Himself, will come to save you. And as He says that, He tells what will happen when God appears to save His people. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened. Then shall the ears of the deaf be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a heart, like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb or the mute would sing. And as God came to save His people, these would be the signs specifically that would mark the fact that He's appeared. Now when we look at the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, they did a lot of miracles. They raised the dead even. But, they cleansed lepers. But, as far as we have any record of, no blind eyes were opened by them. No deaf ears unstopped. No mute people were made to speak. No lame ones leaped like a deer. And yet, when the Lord Jesus appeared, guess what happened? God had come to save His people and then the eyes of the blind were opened. Then the ears of the deaf were unstopped. The, the, the mute began to sing. And the lame man began to leap like a deer. And as well, those signs were done by his apostles to show that they were indeed his emissaries, his successors. But but we see here, this blind man in John 9, that's what he's in fact catechizing these Pharisees. Here's a marvelous thing. This man has done a miracle that hasn't been done from the foundation of the world, and yet you can't recognize he's of God. And God had clearly in His Word said, this will happen when I come to save my people. The Lord Jesus had done these signs. And that marks the first part of the book of John. John 1-11, through the signs that the Lord Jesus did that pointed to what He had come to do spiritually. Kenneth Good has a very good book on the Gospel of John. I would imagine Pastor McGuire, when he was among you, he may have recommended it. God's Gracious Purpose. Brother Kenneth Good pastored the North Olmsted Baptist Church up in the Cleveland area. He has some very good books, commentary on Ephesians, and points out God's sovereign grace. But he points out God's sovereign grace in the Gospel of John in that book, God's Gracious Purpose. 
And we have these miracles that speak of God's sovereign grace. Like the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5. And there He is, among many there, waiting for the stirring of the waters. And the Lord Jesus walks up to him and says, Wilt thou be whole? And he says, Well, Lord, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. That wasn't the question the Lord Jesus asked. Do you want to be well? And then Brother Good points out the singular purpose of God toward this man. There were many sick there by the pool of Bethesda, but one was healed that met the Lord Jesus. Sovereign grace. Brothers and sisters, we see that, don't we? Many people in the world. and Here's just a handful gathered in this meeting place. And yet, why is it that you and I are here? I have to say what Brother Watts did when he asked that question in his hymn. Why was I made to hear thy voice? And in her while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced me in, else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. So we see the the signs that point to God's mercy and God's goodness in that first portion of John, John 1-11. through But then in chapter 12, there's a shift in what some call the book of glory, the second half of John. And I believe that's an appropriate title because as Christ looks toward the cross in John's Gospel, remember, He speaks about my hour is not yet come, my time is not yet come. But when we get to chapter 12, He's there in the house of someone in Bethany. Mary is there. Martha's there. Mary anoints His feet for His burial. Anoints His body, excuse me, for His burial. And as she does that, the Lord Jesus speaks of the fact that His death is near. And, and, and that hour is come, in other words. And John 13 will begin with the words, Jesus, knowing that His hour is come, having loved His own, He loved them unto the end. And, and given that, in that upper room where He's gathered with His disciples, He's about to leave with them. Judas will leave first, chapter 13. And he'll go out and it will be night, the Gospel of John will tell us. And as he goes on, the Lord Jesus will then speak to His disciples these words of instruction in anticipation of His departure, also informing them of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And then He will go out with them and cross the brook Kedron. Cedron it's called in our King James and John 18. He'll cross that Kedron brook because He's got an appointment with death that is going to begin as He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's interesting, we see in uh, David's life, King, he crossed the brook Kedron, but he did it because he was getting away from Absalom. Later on, the uh, King Zedekiah, excuse me, the last king of the Davidic line before Judah fell, Zedekiah will cross that brook with some of his soldiers trying to make a getaway from the Babylonians. But as they get toward the Jordan, the Arabah, the plain they are caught. And he's taken up to Ribla, up there far north, and his judgment's executed on him. He's taken to Babylon blind. The last thing he sees before he's blinded, his sons put to death before his eyes. They were trying to get away. But the Lord Jesus crosses the brook Kedron because he's not going to try to get away. He said, No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down of myself. If I lay it down, I'm able to take it up again. And that's what He's going to do. In His hour of glory has come. And as He is lifted up on the cross, 
And He spoke about that lifting up several times. John 3, John 8, as well in uh, John chapter 12 when the Greeks come to see Him. And they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. They tell Philip. And Philip goes gets Andrew and they go and tell him. And the Lord Jesus says, Except a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it falls in the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. And then he goes on to say in verse verse 32 of John 12, And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. In other words, the time is coming when not only those of Israel, but those of the Gentiles, the Greeks, they will see my glory. And that moment of glory becomes His cross. Even though that cross was a cross of humiliation, a cross of death, it is through the events of the cross that our Lord Jesus as mediator is exalted. Because through the work that He has done at the cross, through His blood being shed there on the tree, as John points out in Revelation chapter 5, those from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and people will one day bow before Him and say, Thou art worthy, Lamb of God, to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. For Thou hast hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and people. And so... There's that book of glory. And as our Lord Jesus speaks in those words that speak about the exaltation that will come to Him as the God-man through His death, burial, resurrection, as He speaks of that, He speaks to His disciples these things that as He tells them, I have many things to say to you, but you're not able to bear them. But He he reveals to them some things that they had not shared during His actual public ministry. And among them is this reality of praying in His name. We see it introduced there again in those words of verses 13 and 14 that we've read, but let's just follow verse 12 with it. Our Lord says there unto His disciples, again in anticipation of His glorification, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on Me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto My Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in My name... I will do it. Twice in verses 13 and 14, our Lord refers to that matter of asking the Father or praying in His name. And as He speaks of that reality, before that, the words of verse 12 introduce something that has become for some, I believe, an occasion of misunderstanding. We have some today who, as they teach what they do, they they speak in terms of Christ's works that He did in earth and the greater works that we do, and they think solely in terms of miracles. Now, I believe that in some measure, the apostles, the successors of our Lord Jesus, they did do in regard to miracles, maybe greater things than our Lord did as they were extended. But but the idea of works here, I don't believe, has reference particularly to miracles. John often calls them signs. Now, they are also referred to as works, but I want you to go back to John 5, and I believe we can understand these words of... of uh, Verse 12, in a better light, in some words that our Savior speaks in John chapter 5. After the healing of that man at the pool of Bethesda, after he takes up his bed and walks as our Lord Jesus instructed him, the Lord Jesus speaks of what He has shown by the Father to do. If you would, let's just pick up at verse 17 of John 5. But Jesus answered them, that is the Jews who wanted to accuse Him because He had healed this man on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. 
Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They understood his words. Here's, here's one who is indeed the Father's equal. The Father's fellow, to use the words of Zechariah 13.7. In verse 19 we read, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He seeth the Father do. For what things soever He doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth Him all things that Himself doeth, and He will show Him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Marvel. Next. Read on with me. Because there's the word greater works again that we find back in chapter 14 verse 12. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He, he that honors not the Son honors not the Father which has sent Him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth My word and believeth on Him that sent Me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in Himself, even so hath He given to the Son to have life in Himself, and hath given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He's the Son of Man. I want you to go back with me to verses 24 and 25 here in John 5, for I believe here we see those greater works explained. The greater works the Son will do. What are they? Well, it's a spiritual miracle. It's a spiritual miracle of resurrection in which those who believe believe because they have passed from death to life. What comes first, faith or regeneration? Well, many would tell you today, faith and when you believe, you're born again. Well, I believe they happen close together, but that's not the order. It's like a bullet going through a piece of wood. What comes first, the bullet or the hole? <laughs> Well, the bullet, but not by much. But it, it, the bullet makes the whole. Well, regeneration is what creates faith. I love the way the hymn writer put it. I know not how the Spirit moves. Convincing men of sin. Revealing Jesus through the Word. Creating faith in Him. That's what happens. And hear the Lord Jesus as He speaks about greater works the Father has for Him to do. He's not looking at the sign miracles He's looking at what will happen in dead sinners who by the power of the Gospel will be brought to life. And in verse 24 we see it clearly as he, 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 he establishes that order. Just like John does in 1 John 5.1 when he says, He that believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That is, has been born of God. In other words, regeneration then faith. Because by nature, David Morris, when the Lord saved me back in September of 1973, I did not have a nature to believe until God in regeneration imparted that nature. And when God in grace quickened me, then faith came to me because faith is His work. And faith comes by the reception of a new nature that's given through a new birth because birth determines nature. And my first birth, first birth in Adam, well, that made it John 3, that which is born of the flesh is 
flesh and mark it down, it'll never be anything other than flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so the Lord Jesus says, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. He's been transferred, if you will. He's been translated out of death into life. And that's what Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Now, as our Savior speaks of that in verse 25, He goes on to expand on it. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that here shall live. Here I think the question to ask is what kind of dead? Well, later the physically dead are referred to, but here we're referring to the spiritually dead. What happens when a person believes? By the grace of God, they've passed from death to life. They've heard the voice of the Son of God. And as they've heard that quickening voice, they're brought out of deadness, out of the deadness of sin. Just like Lazarus was four days dead, he stunk. Let me tell you this. When I was raised by the grace of God, I stank too. The stench of my sin was on me, the stench of death. I still have grave clothes on today. A lot of them come off, by the way, but but not all. Thank you for smiling, but not saying amen too loudly, Terry. Uh, I still have some grave clothes on, but I've been made alive. Why? Because I heard the voice of the Son of God through the Word of God. Now, there's an outward call, there's an inward call. But as the Lord Jesus sends forth the outward call to sinners, His voice intersects that outward call with His inward call. That's the effectual call. I love the way Brother John Bunyan talked about it. <laughs> he spoke about that bit, that, that, that hen in the barnyard. And they said she, he said she'd go around all day long. Pluck, pluck, pluck. Yeah, I can't do my cluck too good. But cluck, cluck. You know, she, she, she'd be clucking. But when she saw danger coming, that's a general cluck, if you will. But when, when she saw danger coming, she would... Give out that special cluck. And her little biddies, her little chicks would come and gather under her wings. Brothers and sisters, one day I heard the special cluck. And I'm one of his biddies. I don't mind to tell you. I'm glad to be one of his chicks. And I found safety and refuge under his wings. Let me go on with one further point. read years ago about a, a man whose barn had burned. And the insurance agent had come to make an adjustment on the claim, you know, to handle that claim. And, and as he did, the, the farmer was showing him the damage and he walked and he saw a, his hen burnt there on the ground. And he said, oh, it even took my hen and he kicked it. And the biddy started running out. And that's what happened to me. The flame of fire, the wrath of God was coming on this old world. But Christ spread out His wings to protect His biddies. And the fire fell on him, and he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But every one of his biddies, hallelujah, safe under his wings. Safe under the wings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We found protection, we found safety. And we found life as well, because by his voice we were brought to life. And I believe these are the greater works, to use his own words in John 5, connected with John 14, 12. You see, He did many great works in the way of 
calling men out of death to life in His public ministry. But what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came in power? 3,000 converted, added to the church. Why? Well, Christ had told us, He that believes on Me, greater works shall He do. In other words, God, through the ministry of the apostles, through the ministry of the Gospel, up to this present age, God has called out sinners out of death to life. And so we see, I believe, uh, what, what our Lord intended as we understand it rightly in the light of His own words. But going back to John 14, brothers and sisters, let's pick up on that aspect now of what He says about praying in His name. Verse 13, we read again of John 14, And whatsoever ye shall ask in My name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in My name, I will do it. <clears throat> Here we see, our Savior presenting to His disciple guidance about prayer. And as He gives that guidance, He tells them, whatever you ask in My name. Now we have no record in the Gospels before this of the matter of prayer in Jesus' name being mentioned. Now, I wouldn't push that too much because in some measure and substance, every prayer that had been offered from the first time that men prayed on earth was offered in Jesus' name in a spiritual sense. But here our Lord refines that for His people in the way of the guidance He gives about prayer so that we might, His disciples might understand in the light of the fact that He as Messiah has now appeared. And as well, He as Messiah is about to go and accomplish that work by which our souls stand before God. I have no other standing before God than what Christ has done for me. I love the way Ms. Rutherford put it in, the, uh, Ms., uh, excuse me, Ms. Cousin put it from those letters of Rutherford. One of the books we bought when Brother McGuire had passed and over there in the study was the letters of Samuel Rutherford, a well-marked copy because you all know how Brother McGuire loved to mark his books. But, but uh, Ms. Anne Ross Cousin, a Presbyterian minister's wife in Scotland, late, late 1800s, she took from the letters of Rutherford a number of lines and wrote them in a hymn or a poem about 26, 24 stanzas. Only a few of them appear in our hymnal, but the sands of time are sinking. Great hymn. The sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn outside for the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in a manless land. She wrote in that hymn another stanza, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown He giveth, but on His pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. And she said, Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's mine. He brings a poor vile sinner into His house of wine. I stand upon His merit. I know no other stand not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. One day when I wind up in glory by the grace of God, brothers and sisters, I will not be there patting myself on the back. I'll still be standing on the merit and blood of God's dear Son, the righteousness of Jesus. And our Lord, as He reinforces that in the thinking of His disciples, gives this guidance without prayer, if you ask anything in My name, that is, when you go to the Father, 
you go to the Father conscious of the fact that you are not going in your own person or in your own works. You're going in My name, that is, you're going on the ground of My person and work. And that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Now, I know some who don't use the name. Uh, Most do. And I believe in using it. But, But when we say in Jesus' name, it's not a tack on. It's the way by which I enter the Father's presence. I go in His name. I like They tell the story. Mr. E.V. Hill, I heard him tell it in a sermon. We lived in Pennsylvania. Uh, he was on the air one time on WDAC out of Lancaster. <clears throat> and uh, they, they, they were playing his message. He told about being asked to pray at the inaugural ceremony up in uh, Washington. I think it was for President Bush the first, but but anyway, uh, uh, they said after they uh, after he agreed to do it, they said, "Well, we'll send you the guidelines." And they hung up. He got the guidelines, and it says, "Now we don't want your affair to be sectarian." And so, in other words, we we don't want you to pray in the name of Jesus. You know, he said he got on the phone. He told him, he said, when I send a letter through the mail, if I don't put a stamp on that letter, he said, the post office will not recognize that letter. He said, when I pray in the name of Jesus, it's my stamp. Heaven won't recognize it without that. And he said, I prayed in the name of Jesus at that inaugural ceremony. But brothers and sisters, in a literal sense, just like letters passing through the mail... The name of Jesus is what makes my prayer recognized in heaven. Not only in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense. Because when the Lord Jesus talks about praying in my name, what He's in effect saying is, I have an account up in heaven. You don't. And so if you're going to get into heaven, if you're going to get heard in heaven, you're going to have to use my account. Now I'm saying this reverently, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. In other words... We don't have any kind of standing in heaven on our own. I don't have an account there that will get the Father's ear. But when I go to the Father in the name of the Son, I've got a hearing. Because it's because of Christ that the Father is kind to poor sinners. It's because of what the Son has done that the Father says, Oh yeah, that's kin. I, I, I know he loves, he, and I know Jesus loves him. I know Jesus' blood, blood was shed for him, and all of a sudden we have, we have that account. Now I like to use it in terms of credit and credit card. When Terry and I married, I had an account at Belk's. Belk credit card. Terry loves that place, by the way. She, she's good though. She she tries to you know keep it in reason. Sometimes, most times. <laughs> no, she's good, I must confess. But, you know, I had, an, I had a charge card, David B. Morris. And, of course, when we married, she became Mrs. David B. Morris. And when she did, she had access to that account. Now, if she'd have gone in and the clerk, you know, she bought some clothes and the clerk said, okay, if you'd sign this tape, you should use my card. She signed Terry Avery or Terry Lynn Avery. I believe the woman said, if she's a sharp clerk, that is, she said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but that's not the name that's on here. It says, Mrs. David B. Morris. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. We're newlyweds. <laughs> Similarly, when I go to the Father, I don't sign David B. Morris. 
the name, the account by which I go is the name of Jesus. I, I have no credit account in heaven. The only thing I had was a bad account. The old account's been settled, though. Right? That's a good hint. I love that. There was a time on earth when in the book of heaven an old account was standing for sin yet, sin yet unforgiven. My name was at the top and many things below. I went unto the keeper and settled long ago. But how did I settle? He washed my sins away. The chorus says, you see, we settled through what Christ did. I don't have an account on my own. I go through the Father, go to the Father, excuse me, through the Son. And as I do that, I have a hearing. And that's what our Lord is introducing to His disciples. Whatsoever ye shall ask in My name, that will I do. In verse 14, if ye shall ask anything in My name, I will do it. Now, one thing we have to settle though, and if I could use that illustration extended of an account, to ask in His name doesn't just mean asking on the ground of His account, but it also means asking consistent with his name. Now, if I could illustrate when we lived over at Gospel Baptist Church Parsonage, D. Murray, Howard Murray were good neighbors. They, they ran the Murray Brothers store about an eighth of a mile from the parsonage. I was telling Brother Junior here last night, we stayed over at the Bashams and uh, down the road just here right across down the Adam Hall Union Ridge Road. Uh, but one, one, one Saturday we'd had snow. And I, I wondered, it's, it's thick enough to where, you know, might be a little trouble for us getting out. And I, I kind of wondered, well, what are we going to do about plowing? I don't, I didn't own the track, didn't own plow. I seemed like I was still thinking that, and I heard a motor. D. Murray had come down and cleared our, our driveway. He was a good neighbor. And Mr. Murray let us have an account with the store. Sometimes I'd buy tires from him, and I'd do it and pay it off in, on time, you know. And he would... Uh, he would have a little book, you know. He didn't have a fancy computer. This was back in the 80s anyway when computers were, you know, a mainframe filled a room, right? But uh, uh, he, he, he would keep his little book, you know, David Marsh, tires, I'd put my payment, he'd, he'd mark it down, you know. And, and, I, and, and I could say, you know, I, will, I would, you know, buy other things sometime on credit, but he would, he would extend that courtesy to me. Now suppose somebody stopped by the parsonage one day and said, I, my family and I are hungry. We, we haven't eaten in a while. Could you help us? And I said, well, you go down to the store and you tell D. Murray that David Morris said to give y'all some sandwich meats and some potato chips and bread and some uh, soda. And, and, and uh, if you will, keep it down to about $25. You tell him, though, I said it's all right. Now, suppose that man went down and he said, well, sir, we... Uh, we wanted to get some food items. The preacher up here said we could put it on his account. Said his name's David Morris. Said you could even call him if you want to. You know, he would probably think, well, they, that sounds legitimate. A, he's, he, he wanted to be kind to them. They needed something. Now, suppose Mr. Murray sold alcohol, which he did. But suppose. And suppose they walked in and they, they said, the preacher said we could get some groceries. But he also said we could grab a couple of six-packs of Michelob, or Bud Light or something. Mr. Murray would have smelled something rotten in Denmark. Because he, he would have said, mm, uh, they're asking in his name, but they're not asking according to his name. I don't think the preacher would authorize them to buy that beer. And he'd be right. 
Now, my point is, some people feel like the name of Jesus is a lucky rabbit's foot. You rub it, and if you want condominiums and Cadillacs, rub that rabbit's foot. But what we must remember when we pray in the name of Jesus, there's that aspect of praying consistent with His will and consistent with His name. And that's seen in some measure in verse 13. Notice it again. He gives us that guidance about prayer, but He also gives us that goal in prayer. And whatsoever ye shall ask in My name, that will I do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. In other words, the purpose of this praying as He gives this guideline in my name, on my account, in consistency with my name, my person, my character, pray. And the purpose is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. For you see, any genuine prayer, any prayer that's birthed by the Spirit of God in the heart of God's elect, any genuine prayer is going to redound to the glory of God. That's its purpose. That's its focus. And sadly, we have a whole lot of talk about prayer in our day that is anything but that. Now, I believe God heals today, and I believe when we stand in need of healing, we ought to pray for it. But I'm convinced that prayer for healing has to be according to His will. I believe that it is a misguided and malicious teaching that tells people who are still sick that have prayed and trusted God, well, you're not healed because you didn't trust Him enough. That's malicious to me. I believe God heals, granted. But when we ask in His name, we pray according to His will. And He has the final say-so. And I'm glad He does. Because there are some things I might ask for that might be detrimental to me. And he knows. When a four-year-old says, Daddy, can I have the keys? Daddy thinks better of that than saying, Here they are. Have a good trip. And similarly, when I ask for some things, the Father knows it's not what is good for me, nor will it glorify Him. And so asking in Jesus' name reflects that. Quickly, let's look at just a a few more, please, and we'll... uh, We'll we'll have to end, but I just want want to make sure we cover more than chapter... Look at chapter 15 for a moment. And notice verse 16 simply, please, with me. God, our, uh, our Savior says, the Lord Jesus, Ye have not chosen Me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in My name, He shall give it you. And here's that idea again of our fruit remaining. The idea of fruit that will endure. Fruit that will abide. And that's what we long for as God's people. I don't want fruit that's going to be temporary. And I don't want fruit that's going to be artificial. You walk into a house and there's a table setting on the table and you think, boy, that fruit looks good. You pick up that apple and it's real light. You realize it's plastic. When Terry and I married, uh, we had uh, pink roses. I guess it was for our wasn't it pink? It got a little little shade different, but still in that in that in that hue. And uh, my my granddad had our marriage vows. Clyde Stanfield from up Caswell Community he was living in Greensboro at the time, and Granny took his boutonniere and put it in water, and it looked real. <laughs> But she, she put that boutonniere in water and she noticed a week or two later that rose still looks good. 
And then she felt of it and realized it was silk. Well, we want real fruit. We want fruit that remains. And our Savior says, whatsoever you ask in My name, the Father, He will give it to you. We want fruit that remains. And then if you would, turn over to John 16 as we conclude. And notice the words of our Savior as He speaks to His disciples in verse 24. Or let's read verse 23 as well, I'm sorry. And in that day ye shall ask Me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in My name, He will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in My name. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Great words here again. The focus is when we pray in the Lord Jesus' name, we pray in the name of Him who has an account in heaven. We don't. But also we ask consistent with that name. We ask for that which is in conformity to what is appropriate and proper to that name. And our Lord lays that down. It's interesting here. He talks about joy. Later He will say at the end of the chapter, My peace I give to you. Earlier in chapter 15 He said... uh, that we would love as the Father has loved me and as I've loved you. Now, there's three things. Love, joy, peace. Have we heard about them other place? Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. How do we possess them? Through His name. That's how we have them. His Spirit producing them as fruit in our lives. Fruit that remains. I understand the poll was done of people and they asked them, they said... What three things in life do you really want? And I've heard that the top three answers were love, joy, and peace. And guess what, child of God? In His name, we can have those things. God grant it for His glory.